You're listening to Bible Through the Year 2017, a weekly devotion to supplement the annual Bible reading plan for Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. I'm Justin Wheeler. I'm the preaching pastor at Cornerstone, and we are in week 51. We are almost finished with our Bible reading plan, this chronological plan throughout the year that we've been on and working through. And if you've made it this far, we've got one more week to go. But this week, we're going to continue reading in the New Testament. We're going to read the book of Philippians, 1 Timothy, the book of Titus, 1 Peter, and Hebrews. So we have a lot to cover this week. And as we continue to read these letters of Paul, we're going to have some others thrown in. We're going to read something from the Apostle Peter, and then we're going to read something from an unknown author, the author of the book of Hebrews. And I know there's a lot of debate about who that is, but we're going to read some different things this week. And we we really have a lot of ground to cover. So I want to try to give a brief overview to each book, and then we're going to start that with, uh, with Philippians. So Philippi was a city that Paul visited because of a dream. You may remember this. Back in Acts chapter 16, Paul had a dream. And in that dream, a man was urging him to come over to Macedonia and help us. That's what the man in the dream said. And the Bible tells us that immediately, Paul and Silas and Timothy, once he had woken up and he had discussed with them this dream, they began to make arrangements to go to Macedonia so that they could preach the gospel because they were church planters and and gospel ministers. And, And Philippi was the leading city in that Macedonian region, and it was home to a Roman colony that was filled with former soldiers, ex-Roman military officials who had retired and settled down in the town. But when Paul arrived, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, the entire city was turned upside down. A church was planted and persecution began almost immediately and it was swirling around this new congregation of believers. And as you read this letter, you, you come to find out that Paul seems to have a very intense love and appreciation for this church. In fact, this may have been his favorite church, which is why his letter is filled with words of love and joy and encouragement. He wants these Christians that he loves so deeply, he wants them to live out their lives with great confidence that no matter what happens to them in this life, the one to come will be worth it. Now next, we're going to be reading in 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy is one of these pastoral epistles. It's one of the, the, that means that these letters were written to give instruction to Timothy and other church leaders on how to conduct themselves as shepherds, as pastors over Christ's sheep. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul actually tells Timothy why he wrote this letter. Not only to give him instruction, but he also wrote because there might not be an opportunity for him to discuss these things the way he would like. Here's what it says. 1 Timothy 3.14 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, here in these verses, we read that Paul is hoping to give this information to Timothy face to face. But just in case that didn't happen, he wanted to make sure that Timothy knew what to do to help the church grow in faithfulness and love. And so he writes this letter. Now, Titus is another one of the pastoral epistles of Paul. It's written by Paul to help his friend Titus know how to lead the church in Crete. And Crete was a church that needed a lot of help. Uh, In this letter, Paul helps Titus understand the need to address false teaching and false leaders within the church. And he helps him to understand how to guide the people 
to live faithfully for Christ, holding on to the testimony of the gospel. Now, the last book that we're going to be reading this week is the book of Hebrews, and it is one of the most important and one of the most informative books in all of the Bible. It is perhaps the best commentary that we have on the Old Testament because it helps us to see how Jesus fulfills and completes the promises and plans of the Old Covenant contained in the Old Testament. The key word in this book is better, because Jesus is better than everything that came before him. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Mosaic law. He's better than the old covenant priesthood and better than the old covenant sacrifices. Jesus is better. That's a major theme of this book. And, and that's an important theme because this letter was written to Jewish Christians who were struggling to find their place in the religious landscape. I mean, they had lived their entire lives in the Old Testament system, and now that Christ has come, all of that system has been rendered obsolete, and they're wondering if, if Jesus really is the Messiah that they had been hoping for all their lives. And the temptation is for them to go back to their old way of life, their old way of religious practice. And this letter is helping them to understand just how much better Jesus is than the old way. Okay, so let's turn our attention to something we can discuss as we are reading this week. And I want us to focus on the letter of Paul to, uh, you know, to 1 Timothy. So the first chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy, kind of like Titus, it majors on instruction for how to address false teachers within the church. In fact, the very first thing that Paul says to Timothy after the opening greeting is a reminder to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So this is chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, don't forget this. Charge these people not to teach anything different than, than, than the gospel, that, that which comes by faith. But if you keep reading through verse 11 of this first chapter, you realize that Paul's still pointing out the type of false teaching and the type of false teachers that Timothy is to be he's responsible to correct. But in the very middle of this challenge is something you don't expect, or at least it's something I don't expect. In verse 5, Paul gives Timothy a summary of how we ought to conduct ourselves as Christian ministers. And it goes like this. He says, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, right in the middle of all this discussion about Timothy's responsibility to confront false teachers and to make sure that they don't teach false doctrine is this reminder, don't forget, Timothy, the aim of our charge is love. Now, there are two ways that we can view this verse. On the one hand, Paul is using it to set up the standard for all those who claim to be teachers. And so, in one sense, Timothy should be able to measure the teachers in the church with this statement. And if they fall short, then they need to be charged not to teach. But there's a second way to read this verse, and it's really... I think this is the, the main thing I want to focus on. It's that Paul wants all of church leaders to see themselves as bound to this aim. In other words, Paul is giving Timothy instruction on how he is supposed to conduct himself in ministry and especially how he's supposed to conduct himself when confronting false teachers. Look, we all know this is true. There is a time for strong words when it comes to false teaching, and there's a time for firm action as well. But the aim of our charge never changes. The aim of our charge is always love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is a chief aim of pastoral ministry. 
But isn't this also a chief aim for the Christian life? Even when we are addressing false teaching, the aim is to love. The aim is not to win an argument, but to win a heart. Yes, we want to correct, but God wants us to do that in the context of love. And we don't have to look very far to see an example of this. Just like Jesus, we're called to love even our enemies and to seek to win their hearts to the truth, not just to win the argument over theology. Now, the point I want you to discuss this week is how can you, how can we live as Christians with love as the chief aim in all of our relationships? How can we show love even when confrontation is called for? Why should we show love? That's a good question to ask. And here's another one. What has Jesus taught us by example and by instruction about the scope of love that we should show to the various people in our lives? Next, let's turn our attention to something I want to encourage you to meditate on. And I want you to, to meditate on something that we, we see in Philippians chapter 4. Here, here's a very familiar passage to many of us. At the end of the letter, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now that last part is what we are more familiar with. But in the beginning of this, you know, I mentioned how a theme of this letter is encouragement. Paul wants to encourage the Christians who are living under persecution in the city. He, he wants them to be filled with joy. And so here in verse 4, he calls them to rejoice. This is, this is interesting, though. This is an imperative, which means that Paul is commanding them to rejoice. I mean, they need encouragement because their joy is being stolen from them by their circumstances. And in, in response to that, Paul basically commands them, rejoice, express your joy to God. But that is not the only command Paul gives them here. In, in these verses, we see three imperatives. We see three commands. Rejoice, be gentle or be reasonable, and then don't be anxious. Now, depending on how you look at these verses, it can seem encouraging or it can be discouraging. If you read this and think that the way to get over the hardships of life is to simply muster up the strength to obey, then in the end you might find this discouraging. I mean, if you're already lacking in strength, how is it going to help You know, by being told to be strong? But if you read these verses a different way, it can bring life into your struggle. Notice that Paul doesn't just say rejoice here. He says rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't just say be gentle. He says be gentle and then reminds us that the Lord is at hand. He doesn't just say don't be anxious. He says take your anxieties to God your Father who loves you. Now this is an incredibly important lesson for us to learn about our Christian faith. The imperatives of the Christian life, the commands of the Christian life, are always rooted in the indicatives, the objective facts of God's work of redemption. It's not rejoice or God's going to get you. It's rejoice because in Christ he's already got you. 
Rejoice because you've been freed from sin's guilt and power. Rejoice because you have been brought near to God, though you were once far off. Rejoice because you have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's it's not be gentle because God sees and he can't wait for you to mess up so he can zap you. He, He wants to remind us to extend the grace and mercy of God that has already been shown to us. Or like it says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. He doesn't tell us to be imitators of God so that we will be beloved children, but be imitators of God because we already are beloved children. Our command to be like God flows out of the reality that we are like God. So Paul's not saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you worried? Don't you know that God is in control? That's not what he's saying. He's rather saying, with, with, with tenderness and encouragement here, he's saying, he's lovingly reminding us that our cares and our concerns shouldn't pull us away from God, but should cause us to draw near to God, to come boldly to his throne of grace. And so what I want us to meditate on is this, the the truth of the gospel must take deep root in our hearts. When we don't feel his presence in our circumstances, we need to be reminded that he's still there watching, protecting, encouraging, and sustaining us. God wants to encourage us with these verses. He knows what we're walking through. He knows that we're lonely or that that things just look really hard right now and dark right now. And he wants us, knowing who he is and knowing what he's done for us through Christ, he wants us to draw near to him for comfort and peace. So don't just work yourself to death or worry yourself to death. Slow down. Remember the cross and the love of God and come to the feet of Jesus and let his peace guard your heart and your mind. And finally, something that we can pray about this week. The motivation for prayer this week is going to come from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and it's going to flow right out of what we just talked about. Here's what we read there. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time. Of need. Now, the backstory on this passage has to do with the fact that within the Old Testament temple system, prayer was offered through a priest. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the most holy place behind the veil before the presence of God, and that high priest would offer up prayers on the behalf of the people. This only happened once a year, and only one priest, the high priest, had the honor of bringing our prayers before God. So it was really critical that he get it right. But with the coming of Christ, everything has changed. Remember, Jesus is better. We no longer rely upon a human high priest, and he no longer takes our prayers to God once a year. As it stands in Christ, Jesus is at the right hand of God now, and he is serving as our great high priest now and forevermore. He is sitting at God's right hand in this moment, and he is ready at all times to intercede for us. He is constantly bringing our prayers before the Father. So what do we do? Well, according to the writer of Hebrews, we draw near with confidence, trusting that when we pray, we're heard. 
trusting that when we pray, God is ready to, to respond and give us mercy and grace. The throne of judgment has become a throne of grace, and we have a ready high priest who ever lives to take our prayers to God. And so, brother, sister, let us pray with confidence to God this week through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to learn more about the church, about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can even find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on the new content. Thanks for listening.